How's everyone doing? Awesome? Sweet. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming. Uh, I want to welcome you to our second soapbox in our new building, which is uh, really nice to have, and we have a really great guest. Um, I wanted to start off, how many of you remember the movie Jerry Maguire? <laughs> everyone? You remember that scene? Not the show me the money scene, but the scene in the beginning of the movie where Tom Cruise furiously bangs out this manifesto that he hopes will fix all the problems he sees in his profession. Well, our guest today had a sort of similar realization as Tom Cruise's character while he was an exec at Yahoo. He had realized his company had lost focus. I want to get into all of that, but first, please give a warm welcome to Brad Garlinghouse, CEO of Usendit. Well, thank, thank you. you very much. I'm, it's a pleasure having you here and, and all that good stuff. You're just right down the street, so it wasn't very too easy. arduous a journey to get here. Very easy in a, a beautiful building. Uh, I'm very impressed. Awesome. Thank yeah. you very much. Uh, we, we really love it, if you can, can tell. Anyway, no, <laughs> I wanted to start off by you know, going back a little bit. You have your roots as an investor, an entrepreneur. Um, you became an exec at Yahoo. Three and a half years into your tenure, tenure, you wrote what was called the Peanut Butter Manifesto. Uh, what was the company like when you joined? And what was it like when you wrote that memo? And, and why should we all hate peanut butter? <laughs> well, so the truth be told, I actually like peanut butter. Uh, it was just the, the metaphor that seemed to work to kind of, and actually, a, at the time, the COO of the company was the person who had said, you know, hey, we spread around our investment dollars like peanut butter. And I, you know, he was saying that in a good way. So everybody got, you know, no one was going to be pissed off. Everybody got something. And I looked at it as like, oh, my God, that's a terrible way to describe it. Uh, so it, when I joined Yahoo, it was, you know, kind of late 02, early 03. And the company, for those of you who were out in the valley in those years, you know, I mean, Yahoo was on the verge of death. And this was the kind of, you know, Terry Semmel had just come in as CEO and the company was kind of, hey, you know, we're going to reinvest in things and fix things and build better products. And it was really, I think, you know, there's a handful, I met a handful of Yahoo alums in the audience and some people who work at Usendit are here that were Yahoo those years. It was an awesome group of people, an incredibly passionate group of people who I think uh, had that kind of contrarian, like, mm -hmm. We're going to make Yahoo awesome again. And Yahoo had a pretty amazing run from kind of 02, 03, 04. Part of that was very organic in what we built. Part of that was through M&A. Anyway, it gets to be about, uh, this is somewhere around September, October of 06. Yeah, 06, sorry. And it, I haven't actually talked publicly about some of this stuff, but it's kind of, it's, it's an interesting story because... Uh, I went to a senior staff meeting, and that same day, it was a Tuesday, how I still remember it, and it, this article had come out in the New York Times, written by a reporter named Saul Hansel, who covered the tech sector for the New York Times, and he wrote this article, and it was frankly a scathing article about Yahoo, mm -hmm. and we had senior staff that day, and there was this kind of general sentiment amongst a lot of the leaders at Yahoo that it was bullshit. It's like, Saul's full of shit. He's a pain in the ass. Like, you know, that wasn't fair. The New York Times loves Google. They write about Google all the time, which is true. But, you know, that, <laughs> but I read this article and at senior staff, and I'm like, like, what are you guys talking about? The article's right. 
Like, I, if you go back and you have, to, you have to look and dig for the article, but I, I remember reading the article and thinking he's spot on. So at the time, my, my boss at the time basically wanted to shut me up at staff and said, I'll tell you what, why don't you write what you think we should be doing differently? And I'm like, okay. So, yeah, I think he probably regretted that. Uh, the, the, the next, just I'll shorten this a little bit, but the next thing that happened, uh, so over the course of a few days, myself and you know, there really are kind of two co-editors that uh, deserve a ton of credit for some of the peanut butter stuff. A guy named Sean Flynn, who's now at Shasta Ventures, and a guy named Eric Van Miltenberg, who's been dumb enough to follow me along in my career, and we work, <laughs> we work together again. He's great. Anyway, uh, I was a little bit nervous about how, the, how my boss at the time was going to react to what I had written, so I first shared it with Jerry Yang and David Philo, and I had a good relationship with both those guys, and I cared a lot about the company, and I think that was evident in the document. And uh, Philo, who's, you know, always is reading email, but he probably gets, you know, thousands of emails a day and replies to two. As I didn't really expect a reply from Philo, I thought probably I'd get a reply from Jerry. Philo responds like 30 minutes later. He's like, you have to share this. You know, anyway. So I started sharing it with a couple people on a very narrow base. It actually took about eight weeks for it to leak, uh, which happened over Thanksgiving that year. So it kind of started, it was written in early October and leaked to Thanksgiving. And how, how, did, how did it get out? You know, I, I, that is a question for the ages. I have my suspicions about uh, who, who leaked it. Uh, well, this very specific example, I got hundreds of emails from people inside the company, and I saved them all because I thought it was a pretty, you know, you show up for work the next day and this thing had come out on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, and it was an awkward, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it was just awkward. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and I didn't quite know, I was, uh, I would, not to get too Dr. Phil on you, but uh, it, it, I, I was emotionally fragile. <laughs> And uh, I got all of these emails, and in particular, there was one peer of mine, so you know, I'll, I'll leave it at that, one peer of mine who sent me this email, and I thought, it, it was to me very telling about where a leak might have come from, uh, but I, yeah, you let it go. You can never prove these things. And from my, what I can tell, Kara Swisher, for those who don't read Kara Swisher's blog, she has microphones in that place. Like, I can't really, <laughs> I don't know how she knows half of what she knows. It's quite impressive. Anyway, that's the long story. The long, Sorry if that was the long, No, 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 no. It's I perfect. I like long stories. You can right. go on forever. I, I love them. But um, I, I kind of wanted to ask you specifically about a, a certain point that you made, and I'm, I'm going to read it here because I, I want to actually quote it uh, correctly. We lack a focused, cohesive vision for our company. We want to do everything and be everything to everyone. We've known this for years, talk about it incessantly, but do nothing to fundamentally address it. I want to ask you, how important does a focused, cohesive vision shape a product, a company, and what are the dangers without it, and where was Yahoo faltering in that? Well, so I'll take those kind of in reverse order, and I'll probably I'll ask you to remind me of the first part of that question. But where Yahoo faltered in it is, uh, so when I got to Yahoo, as an example, Yahoo Mail was about 10% of all pages on Yahoo. And, you know, over the years, Yahoo Mail got bigger and bigger and bigger and it got to the point where it was representing, you know, 40%, even 50% of all page views on Yahoo. It got to the point where, near, you know, 40 plus percent of all traffic to the Yahoo homepage mm-hmm. went to Yahoo Mail within five seconds. So in many ways, when you did research on, like, what does the Yahoo brand represent, you know, if I actually, I, I used to do this exercise at Yahoo Offsites, I would say, okay, when I say Skype, you say voice. 
When I say PayPal, you say, help me out. When I say eBay, you say, when I say Google, you say, when I say Yahoo, you say, I think someone said crap in the audience. Therein lies the problem, right? Like the Yahoo brand increasingly was like, well, what does that even mean to people? And, you know, where there is, uh, by the way, other companies, I think, increasingly have dynamics like this. But, you know, to do marketing around Yahoo is difficult. And I remember there being a, a marketing campaign we did around Yahoo Search, because mm -hmm. Search, obviously, as we've seen from Google's financial results, a very lucrative market. Uh, but that meant that, like, other, are we Yahoo Search? Are we Yahoo Mail? Are we productivity apps? Are we content? And you know, over the years, you've seen, depending upon kind of who is the CEO, and there's been a lot of them recently, <laughs> you would have answered that question differently, right? Uh, Scott Thompson was taking the company more towards e-commerce and commerce in general. Uh, Ross Levinson, I mean, he's only interim CEO, but you know, it's very much content, content, mm -hmm. content. I'm even forgetting who the CEO was for a period of time. Oh, Carol. How can you figure out Carol? <laughs> Carol was taking more towards a content strategy. Uh, to me, Yahoo's roots and... The content strategy for Yahoo when I was there was always an outcome. And what I mean by that is people came to Yahoo for a utility. Mm. Yahoo Mail, well, search it early on, directory early on, but then things like Yahoo Mail and things. And it, the content, the homepage was almost an interstitial. Mm. Right? The data about 40% you know, of all traffic on the homepage went to Yahoo Mail within five seconds tells you it's an interstitial. The homepage <laughs> is an interstitial that actually is a billion-dollar interstitial. Team the search box and other ads on the page, you know, it's a billion dollar page. And so I think Yahoo still hasn't found itself. I am totally rooting for Marissa. I think they should probably, you know, be bold and buy something of consequence and, you know, uh, make some bets that we'll see. You know, I think uh, if you believe Kara's microphones, uh, it sounds like there's something cooking now. Right. She posted right. yesterday that maybe there's some. Two deals of consequence being discussed. I have no idea if that's true or not, just to be clear, but I'm repeating what Kara wrote. And what is your speculation? Right. <laughs> I, don't I don't know. What is, uh, well, I want to go back to the focus cohesive vision and how that kind of okay. shapes a product yeah. and a company. I think you've hinted at it. You know, with Skype, you know it's voice. With, with the Google, you know it's search. And with Yahoo, you know it's crap, I think someone said. So, but what is that, how does that, what is that, how important is that in your view? Well, I think at the earliest stage of a company, so I've had the good fortune of uh, having done a couple of startups in my career, and I think in the earliest stages of a company, it's everything. And I think that as you look at companies that have been very successful, and you could pick on a PayPal or a Skype, and I mean pick on it in a positive way, you know, there was... Sometimes an individual, but sometimes a strategy mm -hmm. that was very much clear about what they wanted to be in life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I actually, uh, well, I respect the fact that there's a lot of kind of startup-oriented people in the room. And I absolutely respect the fact that there's times in a startup you have to pivot, right? Because mm -hmm. it's just like, this isn't working. I have to do something mm -hmm. new. I kind of hate that. And the reason is because, like, all the passion and energy that you brought to bear as a founding team and founding employees mm -hmm. was focused over here. And then, you know, on a Thursday, you kind of show up and say, no, 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 we're going to go over here. Right. And I think so much of that early success, whether it be success in recruiting, success in 
making yourself look bigger than you are, is about the passion. You know, we have you know, three stated values that you send it, and the first one is be in, passion. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, if you're showing up for work and it's a nine-to-five job, you know, there's, go work at HP or maybe Yahoo. <laughs> as long as you're working home. <laughs> Can't do that from home. Uh, but, like, you want passionate people right. who, like, who, you know, to borrow the Steve Jobs quote, like, they want to put a dent in the universe. And maybe that dent is in this little tiny thing around, you know, some small niche that mm-hmm. not that many people know about. So what? Like, the passion to me is everything at the early stage. And what I wrote about, some of you may know, I wrote a kind of a retrospective on the Peanut Butter mm-hmm. Manifesto this past January and posted it on a, uh, LinkedIn's blog stuff. And it, my point in it, while I very much stand by the kind of Yahoo lacked accountability, lacked focus and some of these things. Right. In retrospect, after years of more experience, I think those are symptoms of something deeper, and that's a cultural problem. Mm. I think Yahoo's culture had atrophied from this passionate entrepreneurial group of people who wanted to change the world to people who needed a, wanted a job and Yahoo was a convenient place to be, and you know, they, the, the passion had just atrophied over the years. And mm-hmm. if you can build and maintain that as a startup, so many other things will take care of themselves. And even when I interview people uh, now, you know, you send it's beyond, I think, a traditional startup stage for mm-hmm. sure. But you know, when I'm interviewing people, the, one of the things I'm interviewing for is passion. Because this is somebody who is passionate about what they do. It doesn't have to be they're passionate about what you send it does. Mm. Have somebody who's passionate about what they do in life. Like, right. I don't care. Like, <laughs> it's just something, bring passion to what you do. Right. It's, it's be passionate about the thing that you are doing yourself. Right. Whether it's, outside of life or whether it is your particular skill set within this larger totally. vision. Right. I completely right. agree with that. And that's the thing that's hard about the, some of these pivots is, you know, and I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but, you know, a company's really passionate and, you know, I'll see a founder or CEO just pounding the table about, we're, we're going to revolutionize this mm-hmm. wing nut. And then the <laughs> next week it's, you know, it's like something totally different. You're like, I, I, don't, I don't know how you translate that passion over to that new segment. It's tough. Right. Now, right. you got to survive sometimes. So. Do, do, you, do you think that that tendency to need or want to pivot is really because companies have not really established what their focused vision is or that they've failed to establish what it is they're actually going after? You know, I, I'm going to slightly dodge the question only because I don't think it's binary like that. Mm-hmm. I, I think that... Uh, you know, I think there are so many reasons. I was talking to a gentleman right before we started up here, and, you know, he's kind of, he's done four startups. One had gone through to an IPO, which, frankly, statistically, he's doing great, right? <laughs> uh, you know, it was very successful. So I, I think there's so many things that impact whether or not a startup works. You know, passion is necessary but not sufficient. Mm-hmm. You know, making sure there is a, a market opportunity of consequence. Because, you know, you see a lot of these startups, you're like, oh, that's really interesting, but... I'll pick on one. I have no involvement with this one, and I apologize to the founders. This I can't have, uh, It's the dog babysitting thing. I think it's up in Seattle. I can't remember. It's like, didn't we know what this company is? It's, it's basically like an exchange for dog, doggy daycare thing. Of like, find a, somebody to watch your dog while you're on vacation. Yeah, yeah. It's something. I don't know the founding team, luckily, so I'm not speaking badly of them. <laughs> Uh, but it's one of these things like, okay, that's kind of interesting, but is that like a lifestyle business? Or are you like really trying to 
and, you know, she might say, I'm really passionate about making a dent in the universe in this small way. Fair enough. But <laughs> if I were an investor looking at that, I'd be like, listen, that is not a big opportunity. I don't, my, my personal judgment. <laughs> I do have dogs. And by the way, I, I, I have never shed as many tears in my entire life as when my dog passed away. I didn't even talk about the past, but like she died. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> no, 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 that's okay. I oh, felt the same Phil. way when mine when mine passed. So I don't, love dogs. Don't 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 worry. Don't don't worry. Uh, maybe if it was a if it was an exchange of daycare for kids or something, maybe it'll work then. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't have kids. Sorry. Uh, um, but um, in, I kind of want to kind of transition that a little bit in terms of you know kind of you send it because yeah. you talk about. You kind of talked about some value points that you guys have in terms of passion, and I kind of want to know how that laser focus on vision and cohesiveness has carried forth from like AOL yeah. to you send it today, and how that's shaping what you're doing over there. Yeah. So I do think that so much of a company, you know, emanates from the culture you create, right. and I think that culture emanates from the leadership team, not just yeah. the CEO, but I think the leadership team, and so. You know, you send it has been the good fortune of having a ton of kind of wind at our back, uh, blowing pretty hard. You know, as I look around the room, I see lots of devices in people's hands, and just the fundamental nature of people wanting to access, manage, and store their data mm. in the cloud so they can access it on their various devices is creating a ton of demand for services like you send it and others. I would actually say it's almost through serendipity that you send it finds itself where it is. You know, mm -hmm. you send it started its life as a pretty straightforward, hey, we enable you to send large files in effect. Mm -hmm. You know, now we find ourselves at a juncture where we're touching millions of people and millions of files when people want to do a whole other set of things with those files. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things I'm fond of saying is you send it has gone far beyond send. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we will most likely rename the company, or I'll certainly rename the company because you know, so much of our product portfolio mm. is not encompassed by our current name. And it's more a reflection of who we were as contrasted who we are or who we aspire to be. Mm -hmm. So you know, the, the company just you know, is a few factoids. Uh, you know, 60 to 70% of our customers are business customers. Uh, we have 40 million registered users. We get about 30,000 new registrations mm -hmm. a day. Uh, and we are you know, reasonably good at the freemium model of converting some of those registrations to paid seats. Mm -hmm. And we're getting better at converting you know, a single paid seat into upselling into a team group of paid seats into a enterprise. And mm -hmm. we have you know, s active users in 98% of the Fortune 500 and customers as large as you know, the Fortune 50 with a 20,000 seat license kind of all the way down to the single seat right. architect down the street. How do you... Uh, at this point, it's you know, you send it's kind of evolved beyond send, and now there's other things out there as well. You know, Box, Dropbox, yep. Microsoft is you know making yeah. Yammer Sky and Ryan. all that stuff, yeah. all this stuff. And how do you guys differentiate yourselves? And what is that central vision? That central kind of you know eBay buy? Yeah. You send it what? For us, the core that you send it is going to empower you to share and control your content like a professional. Mm -hmm. That is the one sentence of who we aspire to be. Uh, I think there's a couple things in there that I'll elaborate on how we compare mm -hmm. and contrast with some of the competitors. First of all, you know, there are literally like 60 to 80 companies that we compete with. Mm -hmm. There actually you know, are kind of three 
that do more than 50 million in revenue. And they're the names you met. Well, I'm not counting Microsoft. You know, they, they, they're a different category. Actually, I'll talk about Microsoft in a second. So, you know, Box, Dropbox, and us are kind of, you know, have, have emerged as some of the leaders in the category. Dropbox is doing a phenomenal job serving what is largely a consumer-centric solution. Uh, as one point of evidence around that, you know, in uh, about six or eight weeks ago, we bought a company, uh, and at the same time, Dropbox bought two companies. The companies they bought were, you know, around music, a music company, in effect, and a photo company. That's great for a more consumer-centric mm-hmm. use case. We bought a company called Found, which is much more looking at a, you know, the utility for more of a professional use case. What Found does, which, by the way, if you're on a Mac, you should absolutely check it out. It's an awesome piece of software. It's only available on the Mac right now. We're moving it to the cloud. But the idea being that you implicit, or almost everybody in this room, I would wager, uses multiple cloud experiences. You might use Dropbox, but you probably use Gmail. You probably use Exchange Server. You probably have a hard drive, which is effectively a private cloud. And so you have all these different cloud experiences, and all of a sudden, you know, you can't find something. What Found is basically doing is authenticating against these different services, taking metadata from those objects that you've stored in these different places and creating what they call a Found Fabric, which then they index and allow the first application on it is Search, Mm -hmm. uh, thus the name Found. But we actually think about how we could light up the metadata in ways that help you be a smarter person, in effect. Mm. Sorry, yeah. you asked about... Oh, so how we're yeah. different. Right. <laughs> so uh, Dropbox is focused on a consumer audience. And, you know, I think they'll, they'll, they can do great in the consumer segment. Right. You know, we want to do great in more of a small business business segment. Box is much more of a direct competitor. Uh, the biggest difference between us and Box, frankly, is they have a, a strategy and vision which is all about come to me. Change your workflow and build applications on me. We take the point of view of no, 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 no. Don't change your workflow. We're gonna we integrate into Outlook. We integrate into SharePoint. Uh, we have kind of out of date, but we will update them integrations into Adobe using Adobe's SDKs. Uh, our viewpoint is like no matter where you work already, we want to extend that. And that's certainly true on you know the, we launched a new iOS for the iPhone app recently, which I think is a great manifest, manifestation of that. But we really just embrace this idea of we work where you work. Mm. And I think if you look at Box's strategy, which also I think is an interesting strategy, is different, right. is much more around, you know, hey, we're a new platform, go build on top of us. Mm. So you're, you're about getting into the workflow as opposed to creating another workflow for people to get to. Yeah, I, my life's really complicated. And uh, I don't... So is mine. <laughs> yeah, I don't think people generally want yet right. another thing, thing to worry about. And it, I think over time, you know, I, I think, you know, to be fair, I, I don't, I'm not trying to speak for Box's strategy as much as I probably have. But, you know, I, I think that they would articulate a, no, everybody's going to use Box. And so we can all share with Box. You know, I mean, I, I actually enjoy uh, following Aaron Levy on Twitter because he talks about how Microsoft's going to go out of business and SharePoint's going to die. You know, SharePoint's in 78% of the Fortune 500, and that's continued to remain steady to slightly increasing. You know, we integrate it with SharePoint because we feel like that is, you know, maybe it's because of the reality. We're a small company. Microsoft's mm-hmm. a rather large company. We'd rather right. look at how do we work alongside SharePoint and make your SharePoint applications or SharePoint files mm-hmm. mobile where, you know, SharePoint doesn't have a mobile application. Mm-hmm. So pieces like that. The, the last thing which I should have mentioned is I think security is, I think, a differentiator in this space. 
-hmm. you know, from the earliest days of you send it, we took encryption very seriously. And uh, even to this day, you know, knock on wood, we have not had any uh, issues. Uh, and so we try to take that pretty seriously, given the kind of professional use case. Mm -hmm. What I like to say, and I'll say in a smaller audience, crassly, uh, when a Fortune 50 company, mm -hmm. before they'll sign a 20,000 seat license, they give you a proverbial proctology exam to check for your security. So our single seat users get the benefit of a Fortune 50 right. security review that uh, I think has served us well. Awesome, nice. And I kind of want to go back, and like, it sounds like you guys are, are narrowed in onto this, inserting yourself into their workflow, we make it work for you uh, type of attitude. But when there are these competitors, how do you fight that temptation to start spreading yourself thin like yeah. peanut butter? And also, you know, what was you send it doing right before you became CEO? Yeah. Well, one of the things, one of the first things I heard when I joined you send it was, are we a consumer company or are we an enterprise company? Mm -hmm. And I, I do think there was a lack of focus in terms of what we were trying to, you know, what was the priority. And uh, I mean, I, you know, by the way, I would also say you send it's still a company in transition. Mm -hmm. And I feel fortunate that we have a ton of tailwind and we have a amazing, I think, new management team. We just hired a CFO who's got a ton of IPO and M&A experience at Omniture and more recently at Ancestry, who just joined this week. Uh, but it is a company in transition as we, I think, do do a better job. Let's make sure we're very focused. Mm -hmm. As one point of fact around this, uh, I literally just finished meeting with every employee in groups of 10 to talk through, like, hey, here's a, it's an eight-slide presentation about who we are and what we're trying to be. Because I wanted every single person in the company to hear from me, here's where we're trying to go. And we're trying to get buy-in from everyone. Yeah, buy-in or dictatorship. <laughs> <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that the other definition of CEO? Yeah. <laughs> you seek buy-in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to have a talking to later after this. <laughs> uh, you know, yes, I was seeking buy-in. I was seeking evangelism. And, I, you know... I was also seeking, like, if people have good questions about why this is the wrong strategy and where we're mm -hmm. trying to go, but it was, let's make sure your employees are your first evangelists, right? Every employee should be able to articulate in a short description, who are we, who are we trying mm -hmm. to be? Because you can't, particularly as a company gets bigger, you can't help prioritize every single mm -hmm. task. And so you have to articulate, hey, big picture, here's where we're going, and here's the priorities at a big level but then everybody in their respective groups, whether it be design, engineering, what have you, needs to translate those macro priorities mm -hmm. into, okay, here's my job today. Here's my job mm -hmm. this week. Here's my job this quarter. Right. It's like a mantra and a mission statement. And what are those for you send it? Well, I, I personally hate mission statements. So uh, I actually, had, we had an all hands back in November and uh, the company had kind of, it had a mission statement, it wasn't very good. I'll, I'll tell you what our <laughs> version is in a second. Well, but I decided to put up on the screen some examples of mission statements. And if somebody, you know, you guys are on various devices, you can look up Barnes & Noble's mission statement. No shit, it's three paragraphs long. And you're like, but of course it is. It's Barnes & Noble. It's going out of business. Uh, you know, in contrast, Nike's mission statement is something along the lines of to inspire athletes everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Like, they sell shoes. To inspire athletes ever. It's like, okay, wait a minute, you know, how does that align? And But you can see it in your head. It creates an image. Right? Yes. And I think a lot of us, you know, how many here wear Nike clothing or shoes? You know, I do. I'm not an athlete. You know, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I like to pretend. It's, uh, and I think they do a brilliant job. 
you know, when they highlight a Michael Jordan or what have you, of, you know, we aspire to be like Mike type of thing. Uh, you send it, our, you know, I don't, I don't call it a mantra, I don't call it a mission statement, just that, that one sense of who we are. We empower people to share and control your content like a professional. That, as simple as that. Control is an absolute important part of it. Uh, you know, one of the challenges with some solutions in our category, and I would bet many people in this audience had this experience, you share a folder, whether it's Dropbox or somebody else, now somebody else can do things to it as well, and all of a sudden the file that is stored on your hard drive is no longer what you thought it was. And it ended up being 30 hours of work or what have you that got changed, overwritten, or what have you. And, you know, you, this stuff happens a lot. And so we think a lot about... Uh, empowering people to share and control your content mm-hmm. like a professional. And that control part's really important. You'd be amazed how popular the simple feature you send it is. Uh, we have a read receipt mm-hmm. function, which is you know, not that hard, right? All it's right. doing is saying, you know... Hey, I read this. <laughs> you got, I, 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 you got, if you sent somebody something, it's just send an email saying, hey, they downloaded it. Well, there's a lot of people who, you know, whether you are in the graphic design business or an architect or mm-hmm. a lawyer... You want to know when that person went and whether it's your photography client, you know, say you took pictures for a wedding. When your client goes and downloads it, you want to know that happened Tuesday at 3 o'clock so you can call them at 5 and talk to them about it. Right. As opposed or to... Or yell at them about it. <laughs> you know, whatever, right? But, you know, little features like that, I think, that uh, enable you to better control mm-hmm. your documents. Right. As we increasingly move to this world three to five years out, I think it's going to be more and more invisible to us where we're storing and accessing managing mm-hmm. our files. But you want to know that they're secure. You want to know the, the control aspects around them. It's one of the reasons why the found acquisition, I think, is very important strategically to where we're going. Nice. Very good. I have one more question. And uh, it, I read an interesting interview with you Uh-oh. in Forbes uh, talking about a second possible dot-com bubble. They were asking your opinion. Oh. And you said, and I quote, there is something unhealthy happening in Silicon Valley where people are more focused on the hype cycle than building great experiences for their customers, end quote. Can you elaborate on that? And what was it about that hype cycle (laughs) that can damage a product before a startup even starts? So I really do think, you know, I have some, you've you've touched a nerve a little bit here. I have some passion. (laughs) Good. In a good way. No, in a good way. Like, and I love talking about this in a, uh, you know, entrepreneurial startup kind of environment. I, I'm a very amateur angel investor, and I will meet with companies on occasion, and I've been too busy in the last year since joining you send it, but I'll meet with a company, and I feel like the product they're focused on is raising, is raising their money. They're not, like, they haven't spent shit for time on building a prototype or building something or testing something, but they, the product they're building is a Series A financing. And they built all this hype around and have financing. Like put all that hype energy around building something beautiful and usable that serves a need and you know, addresses a real problem. So my point is, I think there is something uh, going on in the Valley right now. And you know, people smarter than me have said, oh, there's not a bubble, there's not a bubble. Listen, there are companies that are at trading valuations that make no sense. And there are also companies that I think some of us have seen, you're like, oh, that's a really cool idea. They can't even get funded. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's a global bubble going on the way, um, I'm a little bit older these days, but you know, I was out here in 97, 98, 99, through 2000, 2001, and that was a, that was a bubble like no other. <laughs> 
But I think we have a selective bubble that you know, there's a certain number of companies that I'll say, like, they've been dubbed the cool kids. Mm -hmm. And I will wager that some of them are not going to end up being as successful as we thought. And by the way, I'll pick on a couple just because these are more public versions. Two years ago, I remember, two years ago, about this time of year, everybody wanted to go work at Groupon. Like, it was, the, it was like, holy shit, it's killing it. Everyone wants to go work at Groupon. Let's all, you know. And I remember you know, worrying about retaining people that were working on my team and these kind of things. You know, here we are. Who wants to go work at Groupon? <laughs> Don't quote me on that stuff. Uh, yeah, but I think there are a bunch of... <laughs> the, I, I think that the best articulation of this is when the hype about a company gets ahead of the reality of a company, eventually those things have to come back into equilibrium. For Zynga and Groupon, the forcing function was the transparency of the public markets. Mm. Other companies, there hasn't been that forcing function yet, mm -hmm. and so it will be very interesting to watch. Uh, but I think you absolutely see companies that are trading around uh, the, uh, well above their reality, mm. and that eventually, I guarantee, that will come into equilibrium. I can't guarantee when or how or those kind of things, right. but I think uh, I would rather be involved as an investor, as a operator in companies where I think at Ustended, our hype is behind our reality. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we've had a remarkable run across lots of different very clear metrics. And, you know, it's up to myself and the new manager team there to continue and, you know, foster that going forward. But uh, I think that the, what I was talking about in the Forbes article, and I think that is a, you know, a reasonably fair su summary that that quote said, is I just feel like there's companies that focus more on driving the hype cycle than mm. on driving the reality. And uh, I think it's sometimes it gets so out of whack that you're like, what, you know, you hear some of these pitches, you're like, what are you talking about? Anyway, sorry, enough. My, that's my soapbox. <laughs> that's the right place to be. Exactly. <laughs> All right, well, with that, I want to open it up to audience questions. And I know Peter's already got his hand up, so we'll start there. Uh, just a question about, you know, Yeah. Do you see them more wanting to move in your space, or do yeah. you kind of want to move up market into that kind of super secure area? Yeah. So the, the question Peter's asking, there's a company called Intralinks, which is a public company, I think about a $200 million market cap, and it has been struggling. And I, I think, I, Frank, I don't follow that closely. One point of evidence that I don't consider that much of a competitor. Uh, they provide very secure data rooms for M&A, uh, you know, if you're going through a big M&A event, you know, that, that's where the due diligence room will be in a Intralinks data room. You know, I think what, data link, what Intralinks has found, they charge a shit ton of money for that service. And if you think about, well, you know, you can do 99% of exactly the same stuff for literally one one-hundredth the price on you send it, that's a tough place to be if you're Intralinks. Now, I don't consider them a competitor only because I'm not going after that super high-end market. I think they've got a tough position because they have an extremely high premium price point, narrow market that is kind of getting eroded because I think, you know, granted, if you're talking about ExxonMobil merging, maybe you want Intralinks as your solution, but, you know, there's not that many ExxonMobil deals that require that level of kind of uh, attention and management of who's accessed what, that kind of stuff. Okay. Thanks. Are there any specific markets, though, that you found more success 
Yeah. I, I'm thrilled you asked that question. You know, uh, when it, we were talking earlier about the uh, kind of differentiators, you know, you send it really has historically, and we are doubling down in this direction, is we have a very strong uh, base of creative professional users. And I define creative professional kind of broadly, uh, meaning you know, not just architects, CAD designers, photographers, but you know, we just signed, uh, I'm not sure we talked about this publicly, but you know, why not? We just signed a deal uh, with Miller Coors. And you know, Miller Coors, in, interestingly, it's not a traditional deal uh, in that you got, let's say, 1,000 people at headquarters. It's really for the, you know, the agents, truck drivers, sales reps, where the, the marketing group back at headquarters wants to make sure that when the, you know, the salesperson shows up at the Safeway down the street, that the point of sale stuff, the you know, end caps, are done the way they're supposed to be done and things like this. So it, it almost extends the definition of what a creative professional is. Because it's really kind of creative professionals and their networks. Uh, but creative professionals are absolutely our core base, and we'll continue to invest in that. Yeah. One way you overcome it is you come do these herb soap soap boxes. You talk about it. <laughs> That's one way. Exactly. No. I mean, listen. There's part of you know, so here are the things you do. You you get more proactive in talking about your business. You spend more dollars on marketing. Uh, you probably rename the company because it's called you send it, and you're not just send. Uh, but the other thing I want to caution, and I partly say this in context of the question Ryan was asking about, you know, the the hype factor. We live in a bubble, and it's called Silicon Valley. In the echo chamber of Silicon Valley, it's an echo chamber. And you can be really effing good in Silicon Valley. I pride myself on the fact that I grew up in Kansas. And when I was at Yahoo, and I had a question about like, what do real people think? <laughs> I know you guys are real people, too. <laughs> but I would call high school friends, I'd call college friends who live in towns like Dallas and St. Louis and Minneapolis, and uh, I think as you get outside of the echo chamber of Silicon Valley, you get different impressions of uh, even our category, is the reason I bring that up. And you know, I, so I think the metrics speak for themselves. We have 40 million registered users, Box has 13. So I, I get they've done a brilliant job, and I credit Aaron and his team immensely for you know bringing a lot of attention to the category, uh, but I, I think that the, our metrics you know will speak for themselves. But we also need to do a better job, as I was saying, in terms of you know our Isn't brand. That the and, Yahoo problem too, that you are in, where the Midwest really loves. You know? No, the Midwest doesn't love Yahoo either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I think that's a different problem. I think uh, the you send it brand does mean something very specific. It's too specific and too narrow, right? It's descriptive, but also restrictive. Uh, you know, so we want to step back and have a product that does send, but we have a portfolio of products that do other things already. And you know, download if you have an iOS device, download the new iOS app we launched a couple weeks ago. You know, it's got four and a half stars, and it is a great manifestation of a broader portfolio. Great. Anyone else? Next question. Yes. Um, you said it's had perhaps a bit of a tumultuous history. I mean, change of leadership and whatever. And you talked about hiring people with passion. Here you're taking over a company and trying to instill that passion. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about 
Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, it's interesting you choose that where I actually, uh, there's people who said, yeah, it's a, it's a turnaround. You know, it's a turnaround that grew from 39 million to 57 million in revenue. Uh, and, you know, is, so yeah, it's a turnaround that has some great characteristics of a turnaround. Like if every turnaround looked like that, that'd be great. And that being said, you know, I, I think the, the culture at the company wasn't in a great spot when I got there. I think attrition of employees was high. Uh, and it does, it takes some time and it takes some energy. You know, for the people, there's a handful of people in the room that I've worked with before, either directly or indirectly. It's kind of a reflection of who I am. Like, I'm a very passionate person and I'm not going to go into something that I don't believe. You know, I, I'm not, you know, I left AOL in large part because I just, I lost faith entirely that the turnaround was possible, right? There's a Warren Buffettism of most turnarounds don't turn. And I increase this other point of view that, like, you know, I lost passion, and so I'm like, you kind of got to, all right, I'm out. And for me, I have a ton of passion in what you send it's trying to do to put our dent in the world. And I think there are, uh, there's a core group of people there who are fabulous. And I think if you talk to people there, you know, the culture change in the last year has been pretty profound. Although I'd love this building. We can move in here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. How much are we charging for rent nowadays, Brian? <laughs> Next question. Uh, there in the back forest. On the second question, the shortest answer is just no. Uh, <laughs> Does it have something to do with a memo? No. <laughs> no, actually, I, I, had, I had really good relationships with some of the board members. Uh, you know, I, well, yeah, I'm going to leave that one alone. All right. <laughs> the first part of your question, I already, would you remind me? Uh, Yahoo, Marissa Ross. Yes. So I think Ross was a, I'm a, I'm a uh, you know, not a friend of Ross's, but I like Ross a ton. We've known each other for a long time. I think Ross would have been a very capable CEO of the company. I think he uh, would have been an effective leader. The Marissa CEO was a bigger risk in Boulder. Is it going to pay a dividend? I don't know. Like, I think you knew if Ross were going to become CEO, you could have plotted the strategy of the company you know, continuing to go down the content-centric view, given Ross's heritage and what he's good at and what he does. And I think that is an interesting strategy for the company, whatever. With Marissa, like, I don't know what you're going to get. And I don't mean that in terms of her leadership. I mean that in terms of, like, where is she going to take the company? And, you know, what are the big bets she's going to make, either from an M&A point of view or from a you know, investment in new products? And I think that's still... To be determined, from my point of view, uh, I'm totally rooting for Yahoo. I think a lot of people who were at Yahoo, it was you know it was very formative for me. I, I loved my experience there, and I would love to see the company reborn. Uh, that being said, having spent you know two years in the kind of hey, can we turn AOL around? Like whew. Now, AOL, in fairness, I think was in a darker place <laughs> to start, but I think it's still hard. Once once kind of consumer sentiment shifts a little bit, I think it's really hard to get it back. We have time for one more question. Yes. Just curious, when you mentioned earlier there were three things you look for typically when you're hiring, you mentioned passion. What are the other two? That... There's three values we articulate uh, at Senate. One is passion, be in. Uh, the second is authenticism, you know, be real. 
And the third is uh, be bold, uh, take risk, be bold. And the idea around those is one, around passion I kind of talked about. Two, I think, uh, I'm guessing everybody here at one point has worked in a, say, larger than 100 people company. And as you get in these bigger companies, you know, you get politics. You get people who aren't actually saying what they think. Uh, at, at AOL, there's an expression which I have to, you know, for PG-13 purposes, edit a little bit. But uh, it, was, it was called uh, grin effing. And the idea being you'd be in a meeting. This is an AOLism. I'd never heard this expression before. <laughs> and it, the idea being you're in a meeting and you're talking about something and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You walk out, you're like, nope. <laughs> and I had never heard that expression until AOL. And actually, I saw it happening. And anyway, so one of the core values for you send it is like, be real. Even if you don't agree, like, just put it out there. Like, we can constructively and, you know, you don't have to be, you know, fight about it. Like, let's be real. And I, I think my leadership style, the company is pretty candid. People ask me questions sometimes that, frankly, I'm not keen to answer in front of the whole company. We kind of do it every Monday lunch like this. And sometimes I get questions I'm not super psyched to answer. But, you know, you got to answer it, right? It's like, it's, I think you got to be authentic and real about your communication style. The third one about being bold, I, I just think as companies gain an inertia, and I think, you know, even for a company like Intralinks, you know, it's just so hard to be bold and take risk and do something different. And I want us to instill in the fabric of our culture, like, let's be bold. Let's take risk. Let's, you know, every day, let's think about, well, how could we do that differently? Let's not be captive by what we used to do. And there are examples, by the way, of how you send it still behaving in a way I think it's a little bit captive of what we used to do. And I think that's part of the shift. But those are the three values we talk about. Be in, be real, be bold. Yeah. A, a great culture, in my opinion, uh, is tolerant, uh, it, well, encourages risk and is tolerant of failure, right? Nobody wants to fail, but you, you have to be, create an environment where if somebody tries something and it doesn't work, they don't get fired. And that'll just, that'll be the instant way of discouraging anybody from taking risk. Very good. And on that note, thank you very thank much, you. Brad. Fun. Thank you, everyone, for attending. It was great fun. Thank you so much.